Chapter 59 The city of Wintoncester, that fine old city, aforetime capital of Wessex, lay amidst its convex and concave downlands in all the brightness and warmth of a July morning. The gabled brick, tile and freestone houses had almost dried off for the season their integument of lichen. The streams in the meadows were low, and in the sloping high street, from the west gateway to the medieval cross, and from the medieval cross to the bridge, that leisurely dusting and sweeping was in progress which usually ushers in an old-fashioned market-day. From the western gate aforesaid, the highway, as every Wintoncestrian knows, ascends a long and regular incline of the exact length of a measured mile, leaving the houses gradually behind. Up this road, from the precincts of the city, two persons were walking rapidly as if unconscious of the trying ascent, unconscious through preoccupation and not through buoyancy. They had emerged upon this road through a narrow barred wicket in a high wall a little lower down. They seemed anxious to get out of the sight of the houses and of their kind, and this road appeared to offer the quickest means of doing so. Though they were young, they walked with bowed heads, which gate of grief the sun's rays smiled on pitilessly. One of the pair was Angel Clare, the other a tall, budding creature, half-girl, half-woman, a spiritualised image of Tess, slighter than she, but with the same beautiful eyes. Clare's sister-in-law, Liza Lou. Their pale faces seemed to have shrunk to half their natural size. They moved on hand in hand, and never spoke a word, the drooping of their heads being that of Glotto's two apostles. When they had nearly reached the top of the Great West Hill, the clocks in the town struck eight. Each gave a start at the notes, and, walking onward yet a few steps, they reached the first milestone, standing whitely on the green margin of the grass, and backed by the down, which here was open to the road. They entered upon the turf, and, impelled by a force that seemed to override their will, suddenly stood still, turned, and waited in paralysed suspense beside the stone. The prospect from this summit was almost unlimited. In the valley beneath lay the city they had just left, its most prominent buildings showing as in an isometric drawing, among them the broad cathedral tower with its Norman windows and immense length of aisle and nave, the spires of St Thomas's, the pinnacled tower of the college, and more to the right the tower and gables of the ancient hospice, where to this day the pilgrim may receive his dole of bread and ale. Behind the city swept the rotund upland of St Catherine's Hill, further off landscape beyond landscape, till the horizon was lost in the radiance of the sun hanging above it. Against these far stretches of country rose, in front of the other city edifices, a large red-brick building with level grey roofs and rows of short barred windows bespeaking captivity, the whole contrasting greatly by its formalism with the quaint irregularities of the Gothic erections. It was somewhat disguised from the road in passing it by yews and evergreen oaks, but it was visible enough up here. The wicket from which the pair had lately emerged 
was in the wall of this structure. From the middle of the building an ugly flat-topped octagonal tower ascended against the east horizon, and viewed from this spot, on its shady side and against the light, it seemed the one blot on the city's beauty. Yet it was with this blot, and not with the beauty, that the two gazers were concerned. Upon the cornice of the tower a tall staff was fixed. Their eyes were riveted on it. A few minutes after the hour had struck, something moved slowly up the staff and extended itself upon the breeze. It was a black flag. Justice was done, and the President of the Immortals, in Aeschylean phrase, had ended his sport with Tess, and the d'Urberville knights and dames slept on in their tombs unknowing. The two speechless gazers bent themselves down to the earth as if in prayer, and remained thus a long time, absolutely motionless. The flag continued to wave silently. As soon as they had strength, they arose, joined hands again, and went on. A note about the author. Thomas Hardy was born in Dorset in 1840, the eldest of four children. He was apprenticed to an architect at the age of 16, but continued to develop his classical education by studying in the early hours of the morning. His first published novel was Desperate Remedies in 1871, which began a series of increasingly dark novels, all set within the rural landscape of his native Dorset. The success of these early works allowed him to give up architecture to concentrate on his writing. However, the stormy critical reception of Jude the Obscure in 1895 prompted Hardy to abandon novels altogether, and he concentrated on poetry for the rest of his life. He died in 1928. Thank you for listening to this recording of Tess of the D'Urbervilles. I hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to communicate with me and give me any feedback, and also make suggestions for further readings, you can email me at david at verysmallrocks.io. You can also visit my website, verysmallrocks.io, or our business website, where you can also purchase coffee, if you like, www.bgcoffee.net. I will shortly be announcing the next novel that I'll be reading, uh, but I'm also open to those suggestions, so please do get in contact and let me know. We're very excited about how well-received this podcast has been. Uh, so far, we've had 45,000 plays, and we're currently averaging about 400 plays a week. So, obviously, some of you are enjoying it, and I thank you for your support. My wife and I are due for a break in Europe uh, over the next few weeks, and so the next season, which will be season four, will commence at the beginning of May. Thanks for your patience, and I look forward to reading to you again. All these recordings are copyright to David Clark, and no reproduction is allowed without permission. Thanks again for listening.